Well, hey, if we haven't met, my name's Aaron, and uh, really excited that you're here. If you're a guest, uh, kind of want to orient you to what's going on this morning. Uh, we, so last week, we started a, a journey into the book of Revelation. And depending on your background, uh, you might feel all kinds of different things when I say that. Uh, excitement, uh, fear, um, adrenaline, confusion, inner groaning, deflation, all kinds of different things. Uh, a lot of different experiences when it comes to the book of Revelation. One of the things, one of the reasons I want to do this is, uh, without getting into it big time this week, is uh, as we talked about last week, I think this is... I think this is one of the most important books for our time, and probably not for the reasons you might think if you have an evangelical background. Uh, I see this thing affect, this book affects attitudes in a really negative way all the time. And I think that this book, personally, uh, is one of the most misused, misunderstood, misinterpreted books in the entire Bible. And, and last week we talked a little bit about this, but there's this really huge gap between the scholarly community and what they talk about and teach about the book of Revelation and what the church believes, at least over the last 50 years, uh, on a popular level. So we're digging in and we're processing. And one of the things that we said last week that I'll just say again, especially since we have so many guests in the room, is we don't have to agree on this. Uh, this is not an exercise in group, group think. Uh, and you might really have some strong convictions about the book of Revelation uh, but I, in this series, I'm really pushing on some of those and challenging us. And for some of us, my hope and my prayer is really this series is re- going to redeem this book uh, for you. If you ever thought that this was irrelevant, confusing, scary, uh, that it was about a wrathful God who brings the world to a violent, wrathful end, uh, this is going to be challenging for some, and it's going to light uh, some of us up. And I think one of the questions that comes up immediately is, why, how in the world, how in the world does... Does something that you're suggesting is not true get taught on such a broad level uh, over the last at least 50 years? Like, how does something like that happen? And while I might not be able to give you an answer that totally explains how in the world this phenomenon became what it is, uh, what I can say is that the root of the problem is something called uh, hermeneutics. Uh, Hermeneutics, which is a very big word. Uh, It's a a whopping four syllables. Um, If you play it in Scrabble, it's worth 19 points. Uh, I know that because I looked it up. If you manage to land a triple word score, that jumps to 54 points. Uh, it's like dropping a cold-blooded theological dagger on your Scrabble opponent. Um, and you can brag that you know what it means. So, so hermeneutics is like a big seminary word, and really all it means is the science of interpretation. Uh, in, in every time that a message gets, gets shared, you have kind of two parties, right? You have the person who's communicating that message on one end, and they are seeking to, to communicate something. But then you have the receiver on the other end. And when you have a problem with hermeneutics is when there's a gap between what one person intended to communicate and that what the other person received. Right? And so, so Ken Blanchard uh, shares a, a pretty good illustration of this. And he talks about a guy who's in a ragtop uh, sports convertible. He's on a windy country road, flying down the road, wind in his hair, feeling free as a bird. And as he approaches a curb, this old car comes flying around the corner. It's out of control, in his lane, in and out and in and out of the lanes, and just about hits him. And just as he about to hits him, he yells at the guy in the ragtop sports car and says, Pig! And the guy is, you know, in the sports car is angry, right? The adrenaline is pumping. He can't believe it. So he just fires back, you know, idiot! And he flies in that corner and hits a pig. And as he's sitting there and the radiator's steaming and the car is crunched, it dawns on him that the guy was not insulting him. He was warning him. 
You know, it wasn't an expletive. It was an explanation. He was trying to, not to hurt him, but to, but to help him. And once you have him that, like, that's, a, that's a problem of hermeneutics. You know, and so, like, you've experienced this, I'm sure. If you've ever tried to resolve conflict through text message or email, you know what I'm talking about. You know, like, all the time, there's miscommunication. Uh, but when you're in conversation with somebody, you have the chance to be like, you know, well, what did you mean by that? You know what I mean? And then you can get to the actual the meaning. Um, in our case, however, we've got a 2,000-year gap uh, between the author of Revelation and, and us uh, here and now. And when you, when you don't bridge that gap, right, what you get is everything I've, we've talked about. You get misinterpretation, misuse, uh, mistranslation. And so hermeneutics tries to bridge the gap. And there's a lot of opportunity to mistranslate it. And, and what I will say is it's not impossible to bridge that gap. It's not. But what it does mean um, is that we have some work to do, uh, especially as we'll see in a book like Revelation. And so, uh, so we're going to dig in. So here we go, beginning in verse 1. Uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All right, so if, before we go any further... Right, just pause for a moment. Right, John just told us what the subject matter is going to be. Right, he says, what I am sharing with you is the word of God, and it's the testimony of Jesus. Right, essentially, Jesus is the subject matter of Revelation. Everything and anything he's going to say, the whole point, the focus, uh, is Jesus uh, himself. Which, by the way, is very, very different than looking at the book of Revelation like it's a crystal ball through which we can predict and understand the future and everything that's going to happen. Uh, that's not the focus. It's all about Jesus. Uh, continuing on, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is, in, uh, what is written in it because the time is near. All right, so, so this is a revelation. And, and in Greek, uh, it's where we get the word apocalypse. Um, now, if you Google the word apocalypse, uh, we can throw that up there. Uh, Bill and I were experimenting this week. Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Uh, this is what it says. Uh, the complete final destruction of the world, especially as described in the biblical book of Revelation. Uh, an event or an event involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. Uh, so I want to begin by saying, you're wrong, Google. You're wrong. Right? So this is, this is how we tend to use it. Right? So last week we talked about apocalyptic fever. Asked you what your favorite apocalyptic film is. Uh, this is how it's used in common language but that's not what the word actually means. Like in the Greek, the word apocalypse simply means to unveil. That's it. Right? It's just to reveal something. Right? And so immediately you can feel like the disconnect, the discord between the way that we typically talk about the apocalypse, apocalyptic things, the book of Revelation, uh, and the actual intention of the book. It literally just means to unveil, to reveal something that was hidden or not known before. And what is it revealing and unveiling? It's revealing Jesus. It's unveiling some things about Jesus. And as we're going to find in this letter, the author is affirming what the New Testament affirms, and that is that as we look at Jesus, we are seeing the character of God. Right? They are one and the same. As much of God that can be crammed into a human body, that's what you have uh, in Jesus. He's, he's divine. So, also, as we read this, uh, if, you, if you caught it in the beginning says this, blessed is the one who reads this aloud, the words of this prophecy. Right? This angel is sent to John, and this is a prophetic word. It's a vision, right? which clues us into just the genre of like, the text that we're reading. Uh, and that is the, the apocalyptic genre. 
to, to speak broadly. So, so what that means, though, is that when we read this, we can't read it in the same way that we read, like, historical literature in the Bible. If we do that, we're totally going to miss the point. We're going we're gonna to miss it. Uh, you can't read it like, uh, like wisdom literature or a parable or a law. Uh, it's very different. It's, it's apocalyptic. Um, it hugely affects the way, the way that we read this. And the apocalyptic genre, for what it's worth, for those who like to geek out on this kind of thing, uh, it was a popular genre a couple hundred years before Jesus came. Uh, and it remained popular for a couple hundred more years uh, after he took off. And in apocalyptic literature, uh, authors, authors essentially will ta- use surrealistic, um, almost abstract imagery about historical events. But they'll talk about them in kind of surrealistic, cosmological, big ways um, to try to communicate a point, right? Which means when we read like the book of Revelation, it's more art than science. Uh, it's not, we can't read it like we generally do Westerners. It's kind of like talking about like a figure of, of speech. It's a vision. It's a prophecy. Uh, it's apocalyptic genre. So Bernard Eller, he wrote a great book uh, on Revelation um, on a popular level. It's called uh, The Most Revealing Book of the Bible, by the way, before I go any further, I've had people ask for, like, resources, and I told you I'd give those to you. So before I forget, uh, Bernard Eller's book, The Most Revealing Book in the Bible, very good book. Um, and you can find it online for free if you Google it. Uh, life hack, there you go. Uh, N.T. Wright's Revelation for Everyone, really easy to read, really, really good. Takes scholarship and just really condenses it down, makes it easy to understand. Uh, the Good News of Revelation by Shusky and Heiler is really good. Reverse Thunder, which we talked about last week by Eugene Peterson is really good. My favorite of all time, uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly uh, by Michael J. Gorman is awesome. Anyway, all right, coming back. Uh, Bernard Eller. So when he writes about the book of Revelation, he talks about it like a Picasso painting. And he compares it to Picasso's work, uh, Guernica. And uh, we can actually throw that up there. Uh, and Guernica was a town that the Nazis decimated in 1942. Right, and he's saying this, this is the book of Revelation. Right, just like apocalyptic literature, it's taking a historical event, but it's communicating it through the lens of an artist. You know, and, and so we have to take it uh, as, as a work of art. It's not meant to communicate everything in a literal way. It's meant to communicate something that is true in an artistic, abstract way. So what would be r- the wrong questions to ask of something like this is if we start asking, like, oh, that guy on the right, like, what's his backstory? I wonder, was he, is he related to somebody from Germany? Does he have German roots? That would make for an interesting backstory. You know, or how about that dog? You know, I wonder if that's a purebred or, you know, uh, or how about that cow? I wonder where it is in the maturation process. Were they using that for meat or primarily for breeding? You know, like, if you start asking questions like that, that's, those are just questions that the artist has no interest in, right? He didn't create it and try to communicate any of those things, right? And so when it comes to apocalyptic literature, when it comes to abstract art, uh, uh, Picasso painting, you've got to think about it through that lens. And that is that you've got to, have to you gotta zoom out and let it impact you, right? The point is when it comes to art, right, there are things that art can communicate to the soul that something that is literal simply cannot, Right? And so we could take a literal photograph, a snapshot of Guernica after all the bombings and the decimation. And if all you wanted was literal facts, that would be okay. Right? But a literal photograph can't communicate a lot of different things. Right? Picasso's painting can speak to the soul. It can move you. It can impact you in a different way. Right? It can portray the, the, the horror of this event, uh, the overtones of death, right? the smell of suffering. The discombobulating and diabolical nature of war, right? Art can do these things, 
right? And, and the book of Revelation is, is very similar in that way. So in that sense, you can't go nuts overanalyzing a book like Revelation or you'll miss the point uh, entirely. Uh, and this is really, really, uh, really hard, really hard for us because we, we want it literal, right? As Westerners, that's almost like the only thing we deal in, generally speaking, unless you're an artist. Uh, we, want it, we want it literal, uh, but that's not the way we're given it. So we've got to take it as the author created it. So, so also notice this in, uh, in verse 3. In the verse 3, uh, we read this, and maybe you caught this already. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Right? And so the author is assuming that this is going to be heard. Right? So in the ancient world, when the early church would gather, right? Back then, most people could not study in this particular part of the world, and there was no printing press. So generally, you did not own a copy of John's letter. Right? So what you would do is you would gather with 20, 30 people who would be your church, and somebody who could read would read it aloud. Right, and so as we think about this book of Revelation, this is the way that John is assuming it's going to be experienced and received by his audience. That most of them are going to be hearing this read aloud in its entirety. So again, you've got to zoom out. You can't dissect Revelation like a frog. You know, you can't stop every two verses to analyze it and just tear it apart. If you do that, you'll miss it. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like an orchestra piece. You know, what makes an orchestra piece an orchestra piece are all the pieces that together are weaving together this incredible experience. If you just dissect out the oboes and just listen to the oboes and you're like, well, this piece sucks. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you're missing the whole piece. You know what I mean? Like you can't judge the quality of it just by taking the oboes out of it. It's not the way that it was created. Same way when it comes to the book of, of Revelation. So all that to say, when we read something like this, context matters greatly. Right, the author, the audience, what's going on in the world, context matters. And I want to give you like a modern example of what I mean. So imagine for just a moment that you're reading, you're reading a newspaper. What I'm about to read to you, uh, you're reading in a newspaper, uh, but there's some parameters around it. All right? uh, you're not reading the Lincoln Journal Star. Uh, you're reading the Washington Post. Right? You're not in Lincoln, Nebraska. You're in Washington, D.C. Uh, and you're not just reading any part of the paper uh, you're not reading the sports, you're not reading the business section, you're reading a special political section, uh, and you're not just reading it any time or date, you're reading it uh, around November 9th, 2016, all right? So what I just gave you is the context, all right, of, of what you're about to read. Uh, Washington, D.C., Washington Post, political section, August 2016. Here we go. The mighty donkey that once ruled the land has taken a mighty fall. All right, you following me? The great right horn, whose reign endured for eight long years, shall endure no more. Who shall take his place? Let the reader understand. He who feels the burn has not been found worthy to stand, nor she whose pant and suit once glimmered as the harvest moon. <laughs> the mighty donkey has fallen, and a new horn rises from the east. With face of red and yellow, he who holds the scepter will gather with all the beasts of the field to devour the flesh of the donkey. All right? So... Again, like just for us, it's inauguration week. The stuff is on our minds. I just gave you the context is relatively clear to understand, right? I'm referencing Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, right? Obama getting out of office, Donald Trump stepping in, the Republican Party, rise of them, Democrats no longer in office, right? We all understand that, right? But if you, if you fast forward the clock 100 years and you don't have any of those contextual ideas or understanding, that it becomes very hard to hear that, what I intended to communicate. 
Right now, fast forward 2,000 years on the other side of the world in a completely different culture where perhaps the United States no longer exists. Right now, you've got a really big interpretive gap. Right, and so context matters greatly when we're reading uh, something like this. So, as far as context goes, right, we know it's in the ancient Near East. Right, we know that it is apocalyptic in nature, so it can't be read literally. It's a vision. All right, so it's meant to be received on a very large level. It's a big picture. Right, we also know, as we talked about last week, right, that this is a letter being written to seven churches. These are real people in a real place and time who are suffering under the rule of Roman, the Roman Empire. Right, and this letter is being written to encourage them because they're seriously questioning their faith. Pentecost feels like it was a lifetime ago. They're losing friends, and they're about to lose a lot more because the hammer of Rome is about to come down very, very hard. All of that greatly shapes the way that we read and understand, or should, uh, the book of Revelation. And there's another huge, hugely important contextual part, and that's this. Uh, that's the author, John. And I think there's three things that we really have to understand about John who's writing this letter if we're going to understand what he's trying to communicate. Uh, first of all, uh, if you're taking notes, uh, John is a theologian. Right? He, he is a theologian. C.S. Lewis says this about theologians. He says it's exceedingly important for Christian believers to have from time to time a reasonably sane, mature person stand up in their midst and say, God is... And then go on to finish the sentence intelligently. Uh, it's a very valuable thing. And John is one of those people. Right? We know that John has a very particular background. Right? He believes uh, in Yahweh, the Jewish God. And we know that. And he's steeped in religious knowledge. Right? And so we know that because he, he incorporates hundreds of Old Testament allusions into this letter. Right, some scholars say you can't read three verses without coming to another Old Testament allusion. Right? And so he cares very, very deeply about God and how God is understood. He's a theologian. Uh, secondly, uh, as we've talked about briefly, not only is, is he a theologian, but he's a poet. Uh, and if a theologian is somebody who takes God seriously, a poet is somebody who takes words very, very seriously. Right? Trying to communicate, as we said, through art, things that are too deep for words. Right, to move people, to shake them at their core. Uh, the Bible does this a lot. This is not new to Revelation. And the funny thing is, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible really at all, when you read a verse like what I'm about to read to you, you get this. It happens all the time, but for some reason when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's like we forget all this stuff. Uh, so in, in uh, John 10, 9, Jesus says this. Uh, he says, I am the door. Right? None of us think that's literal. That Jesus is trying to say, I am made primarily of timber, you know. Um, we know that. That's ridiculous. That we, our mind doesn't even go there, right? It's a metaphor, right? In the metaphor, there's truth, but he's not saying something that's literal, right? And so the Bible does this all the time. And so John, in his use as somebody who takes words very, very seriously, there's kind of four different ways he uses languages. He, uh, language. He uses imagery to communicate things that are not liberal or literal. Uh, so, so I want to give you those just really quick because it really does hugely shape the way that we read this book. Uh, first of all, he uses objects, right? So Revelation 1.16, uh, he, he uses a sword, right? And this is what we read. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Another metaphor. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, right? Now, there's people who will tell you, well, I, I read the Bible literally. I'm a literalist, you know? 
Uh, I read it literally. I believe that God says what he means, and he means what he says. And, and like, I love the heartbeat behind that, but uh, <laughs> if you do that, you're going to mistranslate a lot of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation and books like it. Right? This is, not a, this is a symbol. This is a symbol. And it's not a new symbol. Right? John is drawing on something that his audience immediately knew and understood. It's a symbol for authority, for power. It's coming out of his mouth. These are words. Right? It's simply saying that Jesus' words have power uh, and they have authority. Find this also in Hebrews 4.12. It says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Right? None of us think that you need to be trained in hand-to-hand combat or take fencing lessons to correctly handle the word of God. That you need to keep the Bible away from small children because they'll cut themselves. Right? It's a metaphor. It's saying there's power there. It's sharp. It's true. Uh, the words can be trusted. Uh, another one that he uses in, in, in addition to objects. Uh, sometimes, just like this happens in apocalyptic literature a lot, uh, he uses cosmic cataclysmic events, especially around judgment, as a symbol. Again, this is something we find elsewhere in the Bible, and we understand it's metaphorical. Then we get to Revelation, and because of what we've been exposed to and what people have told us, we forget this. Right? So Psalm 46.6, uh, the people are very uneasy. Uh, they're, they're, again, they're suffering. They're questioning whether God is in control. And this is what we read. Psalm 46.6, nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. But he lifts his voice, and the earth melts. The earth melts? Right? Is that literal? <laughs> No, no, it's not literal at all, right? It's metaphor, right? What he's saying is like, look, I know you're suffering right now, right? But God's words are powerful. They are authoritative. And all the rulers in this world who use and abuse people, they think because of the might of their sword and their bombs and the size of their armies that they are going to have the last word, but that's not the way it is, right? The one who speaks words into existence speaks justice into existence. And God is the one who has the last word. All he has to do is speak and mountains crush uh, those little ants who are hanging on the edge of eternity. Right? That's essentially what he's, what he's saying. Right? And, and it's so important to get this because right, Revelation uses passages that are very, very similar to this. Again, John is writing to people who are suffering to encourage them and to give them hope. And some people read this stuff and they get really, really scared. Like that's where hi- history is going. God is just going to light the earth ablaze and be like, man, I've wanted to do that for a long time. You know, and people really get, get, get scared, right? And people will say, like, I, I, can never, I can never believe in a God that's that wrathful in judgment. It's all bloody. It's all symbol is what it is, right? It's metaphor. It is communicating something that is true, uh, but it's not literal. This is meant, Revelation is meant to be an encouragement to people. It's, it was not written to generate fear, which is so huge because if you read it and you find yourself afraid or if you have a pastor or an end times prophecy expert at a church or an author who's saying to you as a Christian that you should be very, very afraid because of what's written in Revelation, that should clue you in immediately that the point is being missed here. You're reading it wrong or they're reading it wrong and teaching it to you. Really, really important. These are supposed to be incredible, incredible encouragements. All right, I got to keep moving. Uh, Third uh, as a poet, he uses, he uses numbers a lot. Numbers are really, really significant in the book of Revelation. So one of the big ones is, is seven, right? Seven uh, means completion. It means wholeness, right? So seven, at the end of a week, that week is whole, it is complete, it is finished. Uh, it talks about the seven churches, right? It's a letter to seven churches. Those are seven literal churches, but they're also symbolic, 
uh, in the sense that what he is writing is applicable, it's relevant to all of us as part of the global eternal church. So there are things there for us. Talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. Doesn't mean there's literally seven spirits of God. What it's saying is this is God in his fullness. Um, very, very important. Uh, it talks about the number 12. All right, talks about the 12 apostles, talks about the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, talks about the 12 elders, right? What that is, that's talking essentially about uh, all of God's people throughout history. Old Testament, New Testament, ancient Near East, modern, uh, all of them. Um, six is a big one, as you guys know, right? And six, uh, so seven, if seven is wholeness and completion, right, six is the dissonant chord to the seven. It's incomplete, right? A seven is like, in a, in a sound is like, oh, you know, like six is, eh, you know, like it's, it's, it's the antithetical to the seven, right? And so, so 666, right? For those who have studied Revelation and you've probably heard all kinds of crazy stuff about 666, right? Mark of the Beast, right? What it is, is that is a discord to, to three sevens, right? It's, if seven is wholeness, completion, divine God, three sevens, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three sixes is the opposite of that. Uh, right? It's, it's, the, it's the Antichrist, right? It's, and so people, like, when it comes to the Mark of the Beast, you remember? Uh, have you ever heard this? Like, where's the Mark of the Beast supposedly going to be? Forehead, yep, and, and the wrist, right? Wrist and forehead. And people go nuts on that, and they have gone berserk on this at different times uh, in modern evangelical history, Um, But again, we got to go back to what's the first principle of hermeneutics, is how would the original audience have heard this? When they hear these sixes, the opposite of the three sevens, this is the Antichrist, that which opposes God being on the wrist and on the forehead. Personally, this is my opinion, and many scholars would attest that immediately to the Jewish mind, this is written primarily to a Jewish audience, that's why there's so many Old Testament allusions, is what they would have thought of immediately is Deuteronomy and Exodus. Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Right? Jesus repeated these words. You shall teach this to your children when you, when you talk to them, or when you sit in your house or walk by the way, when you rise up or when you lie down, and you shall bind them as, sign, as signs where? On your hand right, and on your forehead. Right, saying that as you worship God with everything that you are, it should be such an all-consuming thing, walking with God, that it should consume everything that you do with your hands and everything you think with your minds, that all of it should be consecrated, devoted to the Lord continually, right, day in, day out. Right, taking the mark of the beast, symbolically, it's the opposite of that. Right, it's to reject that. It's not a physical sign. What it is, is to walk away from that. It's to choose to buy into the spirit of the age. Right? And so the book of Revelation talks about people who took the mark of the beast. Right? What were those people doing? There were not computers back there. There were not tattoos or social security numbers or chips under the skin, microchips. None of that. All that happened in the first century, the book of Revelation talks about it. These were people who refused Rome, who refused to worship Caesar. Some of them who refused to fight in his army and treat him as more than a man. And they paid dearly for that. Some of them lost family members, uh, lost lives, lost limbs. Some of them lost their lives. John was exiled on the island of Patmos because uh, he, too, rejected, that, rejected this. And it's so huge because, man, one of the things that just makes me incredibly sad and comfortable and embarrassed is that there have been times 
when, man, evangelicals or like little tribes within evangelicals in Jesus' church are so sure that the mark of the beast is like this crazy physical thing, you know? And so there was a big movement when social security numbers came out in the church where they're like, it's the, you cannot give me a number. It's the mark of the beast, you know? And people rose up against this and, you know, the government let them opt out of social security. So good, good job, you know? Um, you're not going to get social security benefits, which I know there's no money there anymore anyway, but <laughs> that's besides the point. You know, but there are others who said the same thing when Visa cards came out, uh, you know, because you got a barcode, you know what I mean? And, and there's just all kinds of embarrassment and ridiculousness. And, and, and so, again, this is, it's symbol. It's symbol. It's not, it's not a physical mark. Some of you have refused the mark and you don't even know it, right? You did it the moment that you refused to surrender your integrity to make the business deal, Right? Or when temptation came knocking on your door and you just you said no because you weren't going to be that person. You weren't going to do that. You weren't going to do that to your marriage. You weren't going to do that to that person. Right? Every single one of those is refusing that mark right? and writing symbolically on your ha- hand and on your forehead sevens. Right? To write that and to, to allow your devotion to, to the Lord to affect everything that you do with your hands, everything that you think uh, with, your, with your minds. Right? It's, not a physical, it's not a physical thing. What John is alluding to is the battle between good and evil, something that existed since before the fall. Uh, but again, he's doing it as an artist. Uh, the last one that John uses as a poet, somebody who takes words seriously, is he talks about creatures, and he uses creatures uh, in a symbolic way, right? And, and so these were, these were creatures that carried a ton of meaning and weight to the original audience, right? Just as there are creatures for you and for me that carry a certain amount of significance and meaning, right? And so if you want to throw up the, the image Right? So this would be a good example. Right? The, the person who created this intended to communicate a message and depict a reality, something that is true. Right? For those of us who live in the United States in 2017, this carries meaning with us. Right? We, we understand what this is saying, what this is representing. Right? It's representing right, the battle between the GOP and the Democratic Party that exists within our political system, the United States of America, in 2017. Right? What would be a grand adventure in missing the, the point... You know, it would be asked, like, huh, I wonder, elephant, I think elephant would probably beat the donkey most of the time, you know. How big did the boxing gloves have to be to fit on the elephant's hooves? Were those, were those boxing gloves created in the United States, or were they made in China? Huh? We all know it's China, you know. Oh. Right, again, like, that would just be missing the entire point of what the artist created. You know, and so as we dig into this book, we're going to run into beasts. We're going to run into symbols. Things like the Lion of Judah carried so much weight to the Jewish people, right? And the Lamb, uh, which we're going to talk about, both of those in a couple weeks, right? And so we have to just, we have to process through this, through the lens. But there's one more thing, one more thing about John that I think we really need to understand if we're going to correctly handle and understand this incredible book called Revelation. And that is that not only was John a theologian, um, and not only was he a poet, but John was, uh, he was a pastor, uh, and I can't, I can't overestimate how important this is for, for interpreting and understanding the book. Uh, and the reason that it's important to note that he's both, uh, says Peterson says this, Eugene Peterson, uh, in Reverse Thunder. He says, there have been times in history when theologians were supposed to inhabit ivory towers and devote themselves to writing impenetrable and ponderous books. But the important theologians have done their thinking and writing about God in the middle of the world with a connection to and a care for people as a pastor in the thick of the action, sometimes in great distress. 
right? And so you think about people like the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote his letters uh, to leaders and to churches from a prison cell. Uh, you think about people like Augustine, who was shepherding people through the chaotic breakup of, of Rome, the Roman Empire. Think of John Calvin, right, who tirelessly uh, worked to develop a community of God's people right in the middle of revolution. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, as some of you know, suffered greatly uh, as an exile, as, as a secret Christian and leader uh, in, the, in the Nazi regime, uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, then you think about John. Same with John, book of Revelation. Exiled to Patmos as Rome was crushing Christians and about to unleash one of the most incredible persecutions uh, the world has ever known on Christians. And he's writing, writing to them about Jesus. Right? He was a theologian, but he's also a pastor. And here's why this is so incredibly important. Right? The fact that John is a pastor who's rooted to people, who cares about people, who's shepherding people, right, means that he is not writing some cryptic message that could only be understood by a future generation. Right? He would not do that as a pastor. Right? Get this. Right? Every single uh, word in Revelation, every number, every vision, uh, sign, and symbol had immediate use immediate use for his intended audience, for these churches and these Christians that were suffering, right? And so when he speaks of, like, these big things that, man, people, Christians have just made all kinds of crazy speculations about, about the tribulation, Babylon the Great, right, a great city on, on seven hills, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, right? Every single one of those, uh, he was writing, they were happening then, right? Nobody who read that letter would have sat there as they're watching their friends die, as they wonder how much they're going to lose, if not everything, thinking, man, this is going to be great in 2,000 years when somebody can understand this. That's going to be really cool. Nobody was thinking about that. Nobody's thinking like, man, it's going to be great when they read this in a different time and place and can say, now it makes sense. It made sense then. It's the reason that he wrote the, the entire letter, right? And for those of us who, who might be tempted, we hear people say, oh, but see, it's China or it's Russia or it's computer technology. John wasn't thinking about any of that, right? And neither was his original audience. He was writing to suffering people as a pastor, right? He wouldn't have written something that was, could not be understood as his own people were, were dying on the vine. Right, because he was, he was a pastor. He was writing to actual people who are actually suffering. Which is why, right, as we open up this book, you might have caught in the beginning that John says a couple of things on the front end about the nature of this book. That's why he writes this. He says, these, these are events that are soon going to take place. Right, that's why he says in verse 3, the time is near. That's why he ends the book in chapter 22, saying, The Lord has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Right? Throughout the book of Revelation, there is this emphasis on acting quickly, on doing things quickly. Right? So we have to ask, boy, we have to understand when, when the original audience hears soon and near and quickly, how they would have understood that. Right? And when they hear soon and near and quickly, they would have thought soon and near and quickly. Right? It's happening tomorrow. Right, it happened yesterday. Rome is gearing up to do it again. Right, it's right, it's right on top of us. Right, and so if we read this and we're, we're with our eyes on the internet and CNN and Donald Trump and modern warfare and advanced technology and, and the Middle East, 
you know, whatever the evening news or whatever the next Christian speculative person is telling us we should be afraid of tomorrow, we're going to miss the whole point of this incredible, incredible book. Right? The, the whole focus is, is about right now. And here's the thing. The book does have some things to say about the future, and it's glorious. It's incredible. We're going to get there, but that's not the point. Right? The point is Jesus, and the point is right now. Right? And that has to be our focus, too, especially as we read through this book. It is all about right now. That right now, God loves you with an everlasting love, and you need to accept that. Right? That right now, there are people who are living within a stone's throw of your home, and, and God wants you to invite them into your home. Right now, there are hungry people that God desires for you to invite around your table. Right? right now, there are foster kids in our city who have no place to go, and they're going to be wards of the state, lost in that system, and God just might want you to do something with that empty bedroom that gets used twice a year. Right, that right now that God wants to use his church to do something in a city. That right now God wants to invite us to be participates in his kingdom right, that is already here and yet not yet here. To live into that, to help usher that in. That right now there are people in your life that God wants you to actively forgive. That right now there are enemies in your life who you hate, who you resent, who you've refused to forgive, who you, if you're really honest, wish ill things for. And God is calling you to love them right now with an everlasting love. Right, that right now there are things that God has entrusted to your care that God wants you to generously give it away to somebody who needs it more than you do. Right, that right now there is beauty all around you and that God wants you to stop and let your jaw drop open and thank him right, and allow it to cause you to worship. It is right now. That right now there are dark things in your life that you're giving into and it's affecting who you are. And whether you realize it or not, it's affecting who you are becoming. And God wants to take that and change that so he can change you, make you another person he's created you to be, and do through you what he wants you to do. Right? It's all about right now, and that has to be our focus. It's the focus of Revelation. Right? And it's the focus of just about everything that we're going to read as we move forward. It's all about right now. So here's what I want to do as we, as we close. I want us to close uh, by, by taking communion. And the band can come up. And here, here's the incredible thing about, about communion. You know, when Jesus ushered in this sacrament, right, he was calling us to look at our faith in 360 degrees. Right? He says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, right? looking to the past. Right? But I want you to do this in remembrance of me, of what I've already accomplished, and how that's going to affect your future. Right? When I'm not here, I want you to continue to do it. Right? But he ushered it in, not so his disciples would either live in the past or live in the future. Right? Communion is meant to, to affect us and transform us and root us here in the present. Right? It's all about connecting with Jesus right here and right now. And if our faith <laughs> causes us to live in the past or to be obsessed with the future, we're missing it. We will miss what God is doing in the present, what he wants to do in us in the present, right? what he's inviting us into right now. So Mosaic family, if you would stand, uh, we're going to close in worship, and we're going to take communion together. Uh, and I know we have a lot of guests with us, just so you know. Uh, if you're in Christ, you're invited to be a part of this. We don't play goalie at the communion table. Uh, you're invited. It's a shared table. It's a very diverse table. It's a global table. Uh, and so you're invited to take that with us. And we've got three different spots to take communion. Uh, in the back here, here, and here. 
Uh, and the way we do it here is we've got the bread, right, which symbolizes, Jesus said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take it and eat it. Right, and then we dip it in the juice, which represents Jesus' blood. And he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. So you'll never be the same. So we're going to do that now. And um, that's all I got to say about that. Let's do it.